0: Thank you for our online audience tuning in with us as well. So last week, we were very deep in the heart of the law of Moses, right there in the middle of the book of Leviticus. We're going to be in in numbers this morning. But last week, we were looking at the Day of Atonement and and really talking about how that day and all of those rituals that went along with that transfer to the perfect atonement that was secured by Christ's work on the cross had a great uh, just a, a discussion with my D group this week. And I've heard several of the other conversations coming out of the D groups this week. Because listen, in your reading plan, this section of, of scripture that we're reading, this is tough stuff, right? It's just foreign to us. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of laws. There's a lot of bloodshed. And all these sacrifices and the tabernacle. And, and as my group was sorting through this and, and really trying to decipher the, the meaning and the application of all of that, we were reminded of our memory verse this week. How's everybody doing on those memory verses, by the way? Uh huh, thought so. Yeah, I'm struggling too, but we're, I'm trying. But we were reminded of our memory verse from Matthew chapter 22, when when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest law? And we all know this. Jesus said to do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And he said the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something very, very just mind-boggling for those around him. He said all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now thankfully, and this is kind of our breakthrough in our discussion, we were like, man, I'm so thankful that Jesus did what he did, that he came, that God sent him, that he died on the cross, that he fulfilled the law so we don't have to do all the stuff that we're reading about the Israelites having to do. But more importantly, all of that stuff, it teaches us a couple things, that how great... Is our sin that that God had us to do all this so long ago. How holy is our God that all this had to be done for, for people to live in his presence. But more importantly, how significant is Christ's work on the cross that we don't have to do it anymore. So, if we could just get those two things right, let alone those 617 commandments, if we could get those two right, to love God and love people, can you imagine how we could change the world if we just did those two things consistently and and did them well? Anyway, this week in your reading, you're going to get out of some of that difficult stuff and into some stories. Now, I like stories in the Bible, and you'll find a few stories of things that happen in what we call the first generation, that generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt and were making their way to the promised land. And what we'll see is that all along the way, these people, they were hard to lead they were hard for God to lead. I cannot imagine being in Moses' shoes trying to lead these people and and, and being caught really in the middle between these, these people and, and God and trying to mediate between these two as they're disobedient and, and, and faithless and they're complaining the whole time and they're talking about going back to Egypt. You'll read about how Moses' own family rebels against him and eventually God gets so angry at these people that he actually literally burns some of them up with fire and I'm just like... What Why don't they ever get the point? But finally, they reach the edge of the promised land, and in less than two years' time from the time they left Egypt, they're standing basically at the door with the opportunity to go into the land that God said was flowing with milk and honey. And Moses, being a good leader, a good strategist, does a reconnaissance of this land, and he sends out those spies. And most of us are familiar with this story from Sunday school, the, the spies that go into the land. And he sends them out for 40 days. And he tells them, I want you to look for a few very specific things. Tell us what the land is like. See if it's good. See what the people are like. If they're numerous or there's just a few of them. If they're strong or if they're weak. Tell us what the cities are like. Are they fortified? And then come back and let us know. And so they go off into the promised land. And this morning we're going to look at Numbers 13, starting in verse 26. This is their report once they get back. Numbers 13, 26 says, The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. You can imagine the people just anticipating hearing the news of what the promised land is actually like. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, just like God said it would be. And here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, "Let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it." But the men who had gone up with him responded, "We can't attack the people because they're stronger than we are." And so they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. They said, "The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants." And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seen the same to them. There is so much practical application in this passage. And isn't this really just a a cool story? I mean, I, I love this story first and foremost, but what we see happening here, this applies to our everyday lives so often. And what we see is really three things. We see an honest presentation of the facts being given. Then we see the interpretation of and the response to those facts, really two totally different interpretations and responses to those facts. And then we see a very sinful response to the whole situation. The story reminds me of of a situation I heard about this week. This is a true story, by the way. There was a, a fellow that, that came into the community, he moved up one of these hollers, and uh, he had a son named Clarence. And the man and his son Clarence, I'll just be honest, they were known for being, being knuckleheads, okay? And they'd got pretty much ran off from the community that they came from because of their beliefs. They tended to believe that their neighbor's things belonged to them, and so they ran them off. And, uh, They moved up to this holler, and in this holler, there was another man who had a couple of sons, and he had this really nice pair of hunting dogs. And if anybody knows anything about a man's hunting dogs, you don't bother his hunting dogs. It's a prized possession, right? So lo and behold, his hunting dogs go missing. And so his two sons come to him, and they're like, Daddy, we're pretty sure old Clarence and his dad, they've probably got your dogs up in the head of the holler. We'll go up there and get them back for you, Daddy, if you want us to. The old man thought about it. He said, boys, that sounds good. But now listen, be careful. Don't do anything. Get yourselves in trouble. But if you can, go up there and, and get my hunting dogs back. And he agreed, and they take off. And to get up to where Clarence and his father live, they had to go through an underpass. The, tra- the train tracks came through. It really like the one out here on Manchester Street going up the highway. And so they get to this underpass heading up the holler, and, and they see something there that, that stops them dead in their tracks. It just scared them to death so bad that they actually turned around and went back home, and they're walking up to their, their father who's sitting on the porch, kind of got their heads hung low, and they're like, Daddy, we're really sorry, but I don't think we can get your dogs back. He's like, well, what, what's the problem, boys? And he said, well, we, we went up through there, Daddy, and, and we got to that underpass, and, and the train track's there, and we, we saw a sign that that Clarence had put out, and Daddy, we, we're, we're afraid to go up there because this man's a giant boys, what in the world are you talking about? He said, Daddy, we saw the sign there. He put, it said, Clarence, nine foot, four inches. <laughs> I think that relates to this Bible story. It does in my mind anyway. There's three pieces to this story in the book of Numbers. One is that the facts are the facts, or the truth is the truth. Moses sends those spies out, again, with those very specific instructions, things that they're supposed to look for over the 40 days. And they bring all that information back. And in verses 26 through 29, they present the unadulterated truth of the situation. Yeah, there's good news and there's bad news, but it's all relevant news and it's all true. Yes, the land was fruitful. Yes, just like God said, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, they brought back these samples of fruit for people to see. And then they began to tell about the problems of the land. And again, it's bad news, but it's still true news. The people needed to know even the bad things about this place. This was going to be in the book of Joshua and could have been here if the people had been obedient. A military operation where the people go into this land and they began to conquer it piece by piece by piece. And Moses and the people needed to know what obstacles they were up against to plan and to pray about how to move forward. And so the spies begin to tell about these various groups of people that live in these different places and how the cities are fortified. And they start talking about this. And this is not what the people want to hear, even though it's valuable information. They didn't want anything to do with that. And it's upon this information that apparently people began to talk amongst themselves, as people will do. And Caleb actually has to quiet them down in order to give his two cents. See, a lot of times we don't really want the whole truth. You ever think about that? This is why fake news makes so much money. We would rather have part of the truth or even just the truth that we want to hear. And often when we're making a a, a decision, even a small one, we don't take into consideration all of the facts before we choose a reaction and response to those facts. But listen, the last thing you want to do when you're making a major life decision is to make that decision without all of the relevant information that you need to make that decision. So what we need to do is, one, be okay with with the truth. Listen, when you go start reading your Bible, you'll come across some truths that... That you don't don't want to hear because it it shows you who you are, right? It reveals some things about you that that you're not happy with that need to change. But we need to be okay with the truth, whether it's good or bad. We need to be okay with, with relaying the whole truth because the truth is the truth, whether you accept it or not. Facts are facts. Here, the land is flowing with milk and honey. That's a fact. God has promised to give this land to His people. That's a fact. Yeah, there are lots of people already there. That's that's true. Yes, they live in fortified cities, and some of them may be very large, dangerous people. But that's still only part of the truth. You see, the overarching truth here is that God said He would give this land to His people. But like us, they have to determine what are they going to do with all of this information. Now here's where we're going to spend a little time because we see two very different responses to the same truth, the same set of facts, two totally different reactions. And the the hard lesson I want you to get today is that your response is your choice. It's one of the greatest lessons in life that we can learn. It's also one of the most difficult because here's what happens. when 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 you get your mind wrapped around this, This places the full responsibility for all of your reactions or all of your responses to even the most difficult things that life throws your way. It puts the responsibility for that reaction back on you. But it's true. Every single day, we are faced with these, these decisions. And sometimes it's just a split-second decision, a split-second response to how we're going to respond to something someone says, something someone has is, is done, this piece of information that we suddenly learn. And, and, and how we respond to that is 100% our choice. Now, I know, I know where your mind's going right now. Some of you are thinking, the preacher... But you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what they've said to me. You don't know what they've done to me. I have every right to respond the way that I have responded. Yeah, you do. And it don't matter what's been said or what's been done because you can't control any of that. You can't control what people say. You can't control their actions. You can't control what they've done to you. But you have total and complete control over your own reaction and how you choose to move forward. Now, I want to camp out here just a minute because... If nobody else in the room can benefit from this, this lesson, I know I can. Such a major point in the text. And what we see in the text and what we see in our lives is a tendency to fall into what we call thinking traps. See, the greatest battle that day in Numbers 13 that plagued the people was not the battle before them in the promised land. It was not even the battle uh, with with themselves as they argued this out. It was the battle that was taking place in each of their minds. Uh, There are at least, there's a whole host of, what we call thinking traps. But we see three of these in the text. And I want to just point these out to you because we so often fall into these traps, these ways of thinking. We've got to learn how to avoid these. And the first one is comparison. We don't ever compare ourselves to somebody else, do we? I know churches certainly don't compare themselves to one another and people certainly don't compare themselves. This is a trap that will cause us a lot of grief if we choose to go there in our minds. So Caleb says what? He says, hey, let's go up now. Let's go up now and take what rightfully belongs to us. And what do the people immediately begin to do? What's their response? They immediately compare themselves to their enemies. They say, listen, man, we can't do that. They're a lot stronger than we are. They're bigger than we are. They live in fortified cities. And and let me just share this with you. This is something I learned. I wish I'd learned it when I was younger. There will always be somebody that's stronger than you. There will always be somebody that's prettier than you or funnier than you or more successful than you or has got a shinier truck than you do. But here's here's the lesson in all that. You can't allow that comparison to stop you from being who it is that God has created you to be and to stop you from fulfilling the calling that He has placed not on them but on your life. Because if you fall into this thinking trap of comparing yourself, you'll find yourself one paralyzed by fear fear. By doubt, by self-consciousness, when you you just never feel like you're good enough and you will never be able to move forward because of that. The second one, this is one of my favorites. It's catastrophizing. I've messed this word up so many times. I always say it's catastrophizing. But it's catastrophizing. And again, this is one of my favorite things, but it's not that I do it a lot. We all do this one. But it means that we sometimes blow things out of proportion. Our mountain culture never does that, does it? Not at all. Catastrophizing, though, can be one of the most dangerous ways of thinking. Besides Joshua and Caleb... Everybody else was making mountains out of molehills. The people's comparisons gave way to catastrophizing. They said things like, this land is so rugged. It's not just difficult land. It devours people. They said, there there are giants in this place. Clarence lives in this place. The, The Nephilim live in this place. They're just giants. Matter of fact, we're like grasshoppers to them. And when we catastrophize, we imagine that the outcome of whatever situation we're in can only be the most Terrible or the worst outcome possible. And here's what happens when we do this again, we become paralyzed. We can't move forward. We become demoralized. We get to a point where we can't see any of the good that can come from whatever it is that we're doing, that we're dealing with or going through, because all we can focus on is how bad this must be. And this is what (laughs) this is going to hit home with somebody. This is when we begin to fear things that aren't even guaranteed things. We begin to worry about things that may not even be real. We we take these things and we get get so mad at, at what might happen or so mad about what could be true and we don't even know if it's even a fact. We get so down, we get so depressed because of how bad we think this is or how we might mess this up or how somebody might fail me or how this might go wrong that we don't even give it a try. And that's what we see happening here in the text. The last one is similar, but it's careless conclusions. And these two go hand in hand, but but this one essentially means that you're jumping to a conclusion without considering all of the pertinent information. The people said, We can't attack because of this and this and this. But besides Joshua and Caleb, no one was standing there giving them the rest of the information or reminding them of the rest of the facts. Nobody said, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our, our God promised us, our, our God told us this was going to be ours. Do you guys remember? Our God delivered us from the, the Egyptians, the most powerful people on the planet. Our God delivered us from them to bring us to here, to give this to us. Guys, our God parted the Red Sea and let us walk through it on dry ground while he drowned all those Egyptians. Don't you remember that? Our God, when we got hungry, what'd he do? He fed us. When we got thirsty, He gave us something to drink. Our God, when the Amalekites came, our God fought for us and we won battles that we couldn't win without Him. Don't you think He'll do something now? If He says He'll do it again, guys, maybe. Maybe we should have faith that He will. But instead, what do they do? (laughs) They jump to the worst possible conclusion. If we go in there, if the land don't eat us, the giants will kill us. So do we ever do these things? I'll be the first one to say, I I fall into these traps almost every day. You get that text. You get that email. You get the phone call. Somebody says something to you, and your mind immediately goes straight to the worst possible scenario. And all of a sudden, you're emotional, you're angry, you're sad, you're hurt, your feelings are hurt, and you start spreading that to other people, and it's not even true. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is kind of tough because it requires us, one, to change the way that we think, and that's not often easy, but we have to learn to just every single day in most situations, just press the pause button for a minute. And if nothing else, say, okay, Lord, help me choose my words wisely here. Help me, Lord, to have some wisdom to navigate through this and consider all the information. Help me, Lord, to remember the promises that you have and the plans and the purposes that you have for my life. And help me avoid these traps that I fall into in my mind. And we respond like Caleb. Respond like Joshua with a faith that That God will do whatever it is that God says He's going to do. Here's what happens when we don't, though. There there are consequences. And this is where we are going to end this morning. And we see what what happens here is sin will always beget more sin if we don't do something to stop it. So the people take that partial information. They get scared. They have doubts. And they, they fall into these thinking traps, which I think is a form of unbelief and can be sinful in and of itself. And so they allow all the fear and doubt and anxiety and worry to take over and they turn all of that into these lies and they begin to spread that to the rest of the people and it destroys their faith and demoralizes them. And this sinful response, it's a response that they chose, it will end up costing these people the promised land. I know that's hard to wrap our mind around. Think about something like this happening and it cost all of us our trip to heaven. Out of the entire generation of people in this story, alive at this time, a whole nation of people, only Joshua and Caleb will get to go into the promised land. Not even Moses will get to go. And the point is this. It's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And will make you pay more than you want to pay. And what I'm saying is that when we make the wrong choice, when we respond to life situations the wrong way or in a sinful way, in a faithless way, if we don't repent from that, if we don't just stop and make a choice to turn around, then then that can lead us down a very long and dark and painful and costly road that one day we'll wake up and say, how did I ever get here? It's those attitudes turn into actions. And those actions turn into poor life choices. And all of these lies and half-truths and mistruths began to multiply not only in our lives as we see in this story, but most importantly in our mind and in our heart as we forget God's promises. So what do we do? Well, first and foremost, stop the disbelief and the sin right now. If it's there, stop it. Don't feed it. Don't feed your unbelief. Don't feed your misinformation. Repent and trust that the God that has brought you this far in life is the same God that's going to see you through to the very end. What did, what did He say? He said that He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, church. I had one thing to leave you with. Just have faith. When you're scared, when you're confused, when you don't know which way to go, when it seems like there's all these obstacles standing in the way of where God wants to take you, choose to trust God and not all the other things that is trying to draw your attention away. Don't feed the fear. Don't feed the panic. Don't feed the misinformation. But have faith in your God. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father, this morning, we thank you for these these stories, God. They're so incredible. And, And Lord, this is such a sad story to see an entire nation of people standing at the brink of the promises that you have given them and choosing to turn away from that. And God, out of an entire nation, two men have the faith to take you at their word. God, I pray That when everybody else around us is falling by the wayside, that we could be a Joshua and a Caleb. That we could have faith in you in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the fears, in spite of what people, and the naysayers are saying all around us. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. God, this morning, if there's someone here that doesn't know him, Lord, it's my prayer today that they would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we sing a song of invitation, if you need to respond in prayer, if there's a decision you need to make this morning, we just invite you to come as we sing this song. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast. Please subscribe, but also join us live in person on the Court Square in Barberville or find us on YouTube by searching FBC Barberville On Instagram at first underscore Baptist underscore Barberville. On Twitter at BarbervilleFBC or on our Facebook page, First Baptist Barberville.